All right, good morning, Village Church. Good morning. So if you would open up your notes, you should have a, a pen in front of you, and uh, I want to ask you to take a quiz with me. And uh, we're going to see how excellent your history brain is. And by the way, Pasquale, they're called speakers. You play bass out of one, right? They're in your car. They're everywhere. When you get up here, weird things happen. The most simple words just leave your brain. I've stood up here and I'm like, if you could open up your, um, what do you call those things in your, bulletins? Um, <clears throat> they just completely go out of your brain. All right, I'm going to ask you six questions. If you get all right, you're going to get a really special prize at the end of this service. Um, it'll be made out of gold and we'll have diamonds embedded in it. So come talk to me and you'll get it. <laughs> Who is the father of the Constitution? That's number one. Number two. Who is the father of Western medicine? Number three, who is the father of modern astronomy? Half of you are done. You're like, fail. <laughs> Americans, jeez. Who is the father of South Africa? Who's the father of India? Most importantly, who is the father of Luke Skywalker? <clears throat> you have your answers? The father of the Constitution is James Madison, so already most of you are done. The father of Western medicine is somebody, come on, Hi Hi Hippocrates, Hi Hippocratic Oath, people, come on. Some of you are changing. This is why I offered you gold embedded with diamonds, because none of you are going to get it. Who is the father of modern astronomy? The internet says Copernicus, just saying. I'm just saying. Wikipedia, I'm just, I'm putting it out there. I'm up for debate on that one. Either way, all of you have gotten the first two wrong, so it doesn't matter. Okay, the father is South Africa. Come on. Nelson Mandela. You guys are so good. India? The father of Luke Skywalker. Darth Vader, I love it. So what I appreciate is that the word father um, generally means the same thing in English as it does in Hebrew. So can I get an amen for that one? It's like, did you know the father in the Hebrew means one who begets a son? No, it's like it basically means the same thing, which is a perk. But uh, really, it comes down to two major things. Father means either, number one, it speaks of origins, okay? It speaks of the source of something. So some people have said the father of the United States of America is George Washington, and, and he is the first president, if you will. But there's another aspect to the word father, which we use and which you see in some of these fathers, and it really pertains to um, somebody, a leader, with a high moral character who represents really the desired ethos or moral or character of the entire nation. And so you get in South um, Africa, Nelson Mandela for the South Africans really represented for the majority, or at least for many, um, he represented this ideal pinnacle um, character, Gandhi, etc. I don't know about Luke Skywalker. Um, I don't feel like Darth Vader really represents the ideal character. But um, here's an interesting thought for you. Who is Darth Vader's dad? No one, which explains everything, if you think about it, right? You find anybody, you find a person or a nation who does not have a father, or if they have a good, or they don't have a good, but they have an absent or negligent dad. I mean, most likely, whether it's a ch child or an adult, you are going to find somebody who typically acts out 
Can I generally speaking get an amen for most of you? Like, generally speaking, some of you are like, I'm not going to answer that. Like, that's politically incorrect. We'll deal with it, okay? So, generally speaking, dads have such a profound, amazing role in the lives of young people that when absent, generally speaking, there is an acting out. There is um, it's really a terrible experience that happens. And if you remember back to the King series, we, we said this, and I'm going to read it to you again. The father's half heart inevitably becomes the child's no heart. That so goes the dad. Oftentimes, statistically speaking, so goes each of the kids. And so um, dads in this room, I don't know if you realize it, but you have one of the most important roles and privileges on the face of the earth. You are doing something profound. Pasquale, I hear you're going to be a dad. Can I? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. So in the book of Isaiah, it's written to the nation of Israel, and Israel is dealing with um, a series of rebellious and terrible kings. They are like the fathers of the nation. The problem is they're all the wrong kind of dads, and they're leading this nation down a terrible path, and they had one good king, and then bad king, and then bad king, and then bad king, and honestly, as goes the leader, so goes the... The people, the nation, etc. And so what you find here is that Isaiah is prophesying into a nation whose fathers, whose leaders are exemplifying this moral corruption. And then what happens when, FYI, just watch it around you, Village Church, when the leaders of a nation permit immorality, what happens to the people? They follow in kind and then make it worse. This is what happens. This is the rhythm of nations for generations and generations and generations. The moral compass of its leaders often determine the moral compass of the people. And we wicked sinners are just waiting for every excuse that we can find to live out our sinful behavior. And I'll tell you what America needs and what Israel needed is a father with a strong moral compass. Now, I'm not going to get political. Don't worry. We're not going there. I'm not going to like put out three candidates that I think you should vote for right now. That's not the point, right? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> we're we're going to air the second service, by the way. <laughs> what Israel needed was a dad with a strong moral character. They needed a father who could enter into their insanity and who could provide for them security, identity, who could reveal to them the truth of the nature and the character of who God really is. Because if the father of the nation or the father of the home will follow God and pursue him, statistically speaking, the likelihood of everybody under his leadership will increase exponentially. And so we get to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Turn with me, if you will. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It's in the New Testament. Just kidding. Old Testament. Old Testament. Uh, I want to read this for you. It's so simple. You may just read the book of Isaiah and gloss over this, but if you just stop for a moment, I mean, this is kind of a mind-altering, earth-shattering concept. So it says, to this group of people, this religious group of people who are living amongst a corrupt nation who are desperate for freedom. Uh, they believe their best days are behind them. They're seeing the moral trajectory of the nation go through the toilet and they want God to intervene. They need God to intervene. And so Isaiah looks at them and he says this, for to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. He will hold it up, and we see in this text that he will hold it up in righteousness and justice. But you got to remember, we're talking about a baby. We're talking about a child, and here's what he says. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and that's where we're going to be today in Prince of Peace, which is next week. That somehow this child is 
and everlasting Father. I, now, before we really jump into the text, I gotta give you two pieces of context here because some of you are gonna be a little confused by this. And here's number one. Um, Jesus, the Son, is not God the Father. Can I get an amen, somebody? Okay. So if you are new to Christianity, there's something called the Trinity. It's one God in three persons. One God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each person fully God, uniquely distinct in personhood. Some of you would say that feels contradictory. And I would look at you and say, think about yourself for a moment. You are fully body and fully spirit. Both of them are fully you separate, you're not fully you in a sense, you're created to be fully spirit and fully body together. I mean, we are complex as human beings. How much more would the nature and the character of God be infinitely more complex? If I could explain to you the Trinity and you could leave here and say, that makes complete sense, then I have done an injustice to the infinitely complex character of God. And so the best thing that we can put together throughout the course of church history is to say this, God is one. There is not three gods. Is there three gods? Are there three gods? Answer, no. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are distinct um, in purpose. They are distinct in function, but they are one in, in divinity in God. And so some people have looked at this text and see, look, the Bible contradicts itself. It says that the child, who we know as Jesus, is the Father. Well, FYI, this was written 700 years before Jesus was born, and the concept of the Trinity didn't even fully come together until a few hundred years after Jesus was born. And so the author of Isaiah, Isaiah, is not trying to communicate about Trinitarian language. What he's trying to do is tell you what kind of leader the child, the baby, is going to grow up to be. That's what he's trying to communicate. He's trying to say to you that this child is going to grow up and he is going to be the dad, the father that this nation so desperately, desperately needs. Because every leader who has risen up and every leader who said, we will change things for the better, we will turn this place around, we will turn this country around, can any human leader ever give the change that any nation truly needs? And the answer is no. We are waiting for the perfect leader to come in, and we are waiting for Jesus Christ to come back to judge the living and the dead and execute righteousness over the entire earth where every government will be upon his shoulders and he will rule and he will reign. Every little tribe in the middle of nowhere and every um, gargantuan um, economy, everything will be subservient to Jesus Christ and will be run with justice and righteousness. That's what we're waiting for. And so he looks and he says, look, I'm not trying to make Trinitarian like, conclusions here um, because they don't have those categories at this time in redemptive, in redemptive history. What they do have, though, is an understanding that God is going to become a person. Now, they don't know how all that's going to work out. They don't know that God the Father will be um, invisible and in heaven and God the Son will become incarnate. They don't have those categories at the time. But here's what they know. God will become a person and God will come as a baby and that somehow this baby will be a mighty God or the mighty God. This baby will have all the wisdom of the greatest counselor on the entire, in the entire world all bound up in him because he is fully divine. And this baby will be a father to the nation. He will be not just any father who comes and goes or a bad father. He will be a divine, mighty, wise, everlasting dad who will, we'll see this next week, usher in eternal peace. I really wish Jesus was running for president. That would be so much better. Number two, the context 
for this verse is intensely political. Uh, Isaiah is speaking into a group of people who are hopeless, wounded, disenfranchised, living in a corrupt, uh, increasingly morally corrupt nation. And he's coming to them and he's saying this, look, no human leader is gonna fix this issue. There are some human leaders that are better. There's some human leaders that are worse. What you need is an infinitely wise, mighty God who is an everlasting father and ushers in eternal peace. That's what, that's what this nation needs. That's what America needs. That's what the whole world needs. That's what humanity needs. And so we get to this text and we see point number one in your notes that the child is an everlasting father. <clears throat> Why did God make dads? And what's the first thing? Don't say it out loud, just in your brain. If you're dad, why, why did God make this whole institution of fatherhood? I mean, God created it, came up with the family, came up with sex, came up with all this stuff. Like, this is all out of his brain. He made dads a certain way. He made kids uh, in a certain way to need dad. Like, what is it about dads that makes this institution, this role, this function so powerful? Why do we desperately long for a good dad? Like there's something inside of every single person that desperately longs for a godly dad. And when you have a godly dad, you quickly realize you are the rarity. Why do dads have the ability to wound us and leave us with scars, I would say, deeper than any other relationship on the planet? And why do orphans so desperately, something inside of them so desperately want to know their mom and dad. Why is it? What, what is going on inside of us? And I'll give you a couple of reasons as we get into this. Dads, enter into our life, and I would say with unique power and authority, speak identity, security, and divinity. So a dad walks into a child's life, and in a unique way, because God designed it like this, speaks to a child and secures their identity. If you go to my children right now and say, Elliot, are you beautiful? She will say, uh, yeah. Elliot, are you lovely? Absolutely. Via, are you so much fun to be around? Absolutely. X, who is the strongest man in the world? You are, Dad, and who's the second strongest man in the world? I am. X, right? I mean, there is a secure... <laughs> Yeah, he knows, he knows, because he tries to beat me up, and I constantly make sure he knows I am eternally stronger than he is. But, yeah, <clears throat> it's true. You look at these children, and behalf of God, we look at them and say, you are loved, you are valuable, you are precious, you are strong, you are made for more, and when a dad with his words speaks identity into a child with unique power and authority, it goes deeper than any other human being on the planet can go. I know it's not politically correct, but we just see the security. The sense of stability, emotional security, relational security, that a father can speak into a child, you are safe, you are secure. When my children are scared because they're afraid they see something, I can look at them and say, daddy is here, nothing can harm you. Even though technically, like John Thomas, if he wanted to, could probably like harm me, right? But in my kids' minds, because dad is here, if you haven't seen John, he's larger than me. And, uh, but for my kids, all they need to know is that daddy's here and they are secure. 
They know I am. They know you are. And then we reveal divinity to them that it is unbelievable that if you have a bad father, relating to God as he reveals himself as father is one of the most difficult things on the planet. And that there is something so profound about the way a dad interacts with a son or a daughter that the son or the daughter, their God concept is being created and cultivated by the way the dad interacts and disciplines and trains and teaches and speaks. And so that when you find a dad who is using his words to speak identity and security into a son or daughter, when they open up the Bible and they see God says the same thing and they say, of course, of course, because God's like my dad. It's intuitive. It is innate inside of us. It's not some Judeo-Christian thing. It is a fundamentally human thing. And the nation of Israel at this time, they need a father to speak identity, security, and to reveal divinity to them because they are absolutely lost. I mean, do you ever just see people and you're just like, man, that, that, that boy, that girl, that man, that woman, they just need a dad. They need somebody who is an authority in their life to speak purpose into them because they're just flailing and trying to find it and groping for significance and groping for security and groping for identity. And at the end of the day, what most people just need is a father to enter into their life and to say, you are, I am, God is. You are, I am, God is. Man, we have this amazing privilege. And so we step back and we look at what God is saying about Jesus. Jesus comes in and he says, here's who you are, here's who I am, and here's who God is. Oh, by the way, I happen to be God. And Jesus enters into these, into to reality, into humanity. He reveals everything that we need to know about who God is and who we are and where we're going and why we're created. And this is the plea of every heart, whether it can articulate it or not, is tell me who I am. Tell me why I'm here. Tell me who God is. And in Jesus, the child is our everlasting father who reveals the truth about every part of who God is. Now, let's just talk for a moment about being a dude, okay? So there's some things that unfortunately in this culture I have to put on the table. So um, ladies, I hope that you find this encouraging, but um, biology, common sense, um, personal experience and scripture affirm what I'm about to tell you, okay? So boys are different than girls. <laughs> Not just biologically, right? Hormonally, emotionally, like you raise an adolescent boy and an adolescent girl, and you're going to get some pretty distinct experiences. Can I get an amen from anyone who's ever done that? Being a youth pastor, like junior high and high school, I was like shocked at how differently the boys and the girls were. Um, truly unbelievable. But I want to reveal to you what I feel like if every parent of a son could catch, could change the way you raise your child. And here it is. When God made boys, when God made men, men are created uniquely by God to thrive in their masculinity when? So I'm going I'm to tell you something that has shifted the way we raise our son. And this is going to come back to, by the way, Jesus is our everlasting father, okay? Um, I'm going to tell you something that has changed the way we've raised our son and the way we encourage people to do it. So that there are boys and men who are created by God so uniquely that when this thing is fostered and developed in them, they thrive in their masculinity. And I would say this, whether they're a Christian or not, whether they love in Jesus or not, this just applies true for men, that we become our best selves when we take responsibility to lead, provide, and protect someone of great value. Now, here's what we do with my family. We want to teach my ex-man to lead something of great value before he leads someone of great value. 
But I want to give my son measurable experiences to lead, provide, and protect something of great value. Because men, when we don't take responsibility for something, do you know what we do? We play video games all day long. We become useless, we become worthless, we become selfish, and we get really fat. Right? Unless you have a great metabolism, and I'm frustrated with you if you do. Because I don't. Men... Boys are created to thrive in their masculinity when they take responsibility to lead, provide, protect someone or something of great value. Watch your son do that. You will watch him thrive and grow as a man, and he will be uniquely, distinctly set apart from every other boy man in this culture because parents are not, by and large, culturally teaching their kids to do it. I love in the church, when we come to village, I get to see young men who are growing up to be men because they're taking responsibility of something or someone to lead, provide, and protect. And that's what will prepare them to be great dads, great husbands, great friends, great servants in the church, great pastors, great missionaries, great leaders. So how do you do this as a dad? I want to share with you just very quickly. Here are the six ways that dads lead, provide, and protect kids. And I want to make clear, because there are some people who misunderstand, do moms lead, provide, and protect? The answer is yes. I didn't say moms don't do that. I didn't say women don't do that. Women, my wife is an incredible leader, provider, protector. But she does not thrive in her femininity, in her biblical God-given femininity, in the same way that I thrive in my masculinity when I do that. So I'm not saying women, you don't lead, provide, and protect. If you hear that, then you don't really, I'm miscommunicating, let's put it that way, okay? What I'm saying, though, is something about a man, that when he is doing that, he uniquely grows and he thrives. Now, some of you, you're not dads, um, and so you're thinking, okay, Michael, what does that mean for me as a dad? And here's how specifically this plays out. There's six ways. Number one, dads teach truth. Do moms teach truth? Yes. In Scripture, though, the Bible enters in and says, dads, you have a unique precedence and priority to teach truth. Um, my wife teaches my kids truth all the time, but there is a God-made unique authority and power that comes when a father speaks truth to a child, and God knows that and is wired in this way. God is not um, a, a misogynist or whatever that word is, whether pro-male, bad, whatever. Like, that's not how God is. God loves men. God loves women. They're both made in his image. But God has created men with a unique and distinct power to speak to their children with an authority that really does go in a profoundly way deep into, inside the soul of a child. Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Dads, don't you love to teach your kids? Like, don't you love when your kids are like, dad, teach me? Like, that doesn't happen too much, right? But like, every dad is like, yeah, I don't want to teach you right now. Like, every dad wants to be the one who we give advice. Dad's kind of getting a man on that one. You're like, like, I really want to be able to teach my kids. I want my kids to think I'm the smartest person in the entire world, even though I'm not. Don't tell them I said that. Number two, dads model morality. Do moms model morality? Yes. There is, though, a unique power of a godly, wise man who models biblical morality for a son or daughter. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 Paul says, I do not wrestle with these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. What's, what is he talking about? There's something distinct about a fatherly patriarchal role um, where the dads enter in and the scriptures just understand this. There is something unique. There's something distinct about this role. 
For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and I urge you then, be imitators of me. I urge you to be imitators of me. And we step back and we say, we want dads to look at their kids and say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because I want you, and I understand that you as a kid, you're going to look to your dad and you're going to imitate him in a profound way because you live with him and you look up to him. And, and I understand that there's going to be behaviors that, that I do that you're going to mimic these because you're ingrained to watch me and repeat what I do. You're ingrained to, it's something powerful about this. Number three, dad's discipline, error. Can I get an amen from dads? <laughs> Some of you are like, eh. Hebrews 12, 7, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Do mothers discipline? Yes. See, I, I hate that we have to keep emphasizing the opposite because we know it's true. I'm not speaking to the role of women or saying that men are only allowed to do this, just FYI. I'm only just talking about dads in this moment. If I was talking about moms, we would be having an incredibly awesome discussion about the things that uniquely and profoundly a mom does for a son and daughter that are stronger and more beautiful and amazing um, than a dad could ever do. But we're not talking about that. What are we talking about? Fathers. Good, good. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have an earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Sometimes a good dad lets you feel the weight of your sin. Dads teach risk. I love this. Jesus, be strong and courageous. Do you see how many times in the Bible God tells people to risk? Right? This is what Jesus does. Like a good dad, he teaches his children how to push the boundaries a little bit. I love um, the studies that have been released lately. This is so inane and stupid that people pay money for this, but they concluded that dads develop risk-taking in children while mothers create, <laughs> develop um, safety and precautions in children. Duh, right? Like, I'm always like, let the kid jump off the bridge. He'll be fine. Everyone's like, oh, he'll die. I'm like, oh, we'll see. It'll work out, you know? Like, it's like... But this is like the story with all my buddies. Like the dads are always like, oh, they'll be fine, you know? And anyways, it's funny. So uh, dads create safety. When the kids feel like they're in danger, whether they are or they are not, dads and their presence, because of our strength and sheer size, just create a sense of safety. And dads solidify identity. This is who you are. A circumstance came up in our home where well, it came up, comes up regularly, uh, where my oldest two girls are being really selfish. I mean, just to the core, ugly, selfish. You know, like happens with your kids, of course. Um, and so I looked at my oldest daughter, and I, I, I found myself about a year ago saying this to her, and I realized something in my words. And I looked at her and I said, you are a fueling. Do you know what that means? And I, at this point, I'm literally just pulling stuff out of my butt, right? I'm like, I have no idea what I'm going to say next. And I looked at her and said, you're feeling, do you know what that means? And she said, that you're my dad? And I'm like, yes, okay, but there's more. I'm going to figure it out in a moment. <laughs> I looked at her and I said, we care for people. It's who we are. It's why God made us. Everything we do, we do to take care of people. We enter into people's lives when they're at their worst and we love them. We enter at their best and we encourage them. That's why we, that's why we exist. You're feeling. That's what you do. And I looked at Brianne and I in our life, and just in that moment, I feel like God gave me just an ounce of wisdom. Like everything we ever do in our life is done with the motive to care for as many people as possible. We love to enter into people's most difficult and most joyous moments and just celebrate with them and bring Christ into that moment. And I was looking at my kids and their selfishness and saying, you know what? Like this is kind of a fueling distinctive. And in that moment, I realized like this kind of is like our family motto. Like this is why we're here. And I look at my daughter, and now this comment just keeps coming back, and I keep saying it to her, and I'm thinking, like, wow, we, 
We're here to care for people. We're here to give our best for people. Now we're just saying it in all these different ways, but at the end of the day, like that's almost becoming like my motto with my kids. You're fueling. We care for people. We enter into their hardest moments and we bring hope for them. So in the morning when I pray for my kids, often I'll pray um, that they will find a kid who's hurting and that they would bring the light of Jesus into their life, that they find a kid who's left out and that we would enter into those moments in their life. And this has just been the story of Brianna and I's life. And every family I find, because of the unique character, the unique nature, the calling, the gifting of every mom and dad, they just have a unique reason that God has put them there. But I get to speak into my kids and say, you're fueling, and this is what we do. In other families, they do different things, and that's awesome. But, and my kids hear that. And let me tell you something. My kids are going to grow up, and those words will sink deep into their soul because as their dad, I'm speaking to them their identity. And so we get to Jesus and we step back and we're like, all right, what about Jesus? Jesus does all of this for us. A broken people who need a dad, who needs something even better and beyond are awesome earthly dads and most of us are pathetic earthly dads. We need something better than this. And just to share with you, Jesus, he is our teacher of truth. Jesus models our morality. Jesus disciplines our error. Jesus teaches us risk. Jesus creates safety. Jesus solidifies identity. And at the end of the day, we have such a longing and a need for dads because God has made us like this so that our dads can be a big fat arrow that point us to Jesus and say, he's better. He is better. And you might have the greatest dad on the planet and think to yourself, I have no need for a heavenly everlasting father. And I would look at you and say this, your dad cannot save you from your sins. You need God on your side. You need a dad who will create spiritual safety around you and will protect you from the wrath of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what you have in Jesus. And so we have this everlasting father picture. And I just want to paint for you and look at you and say, however awesome your dad is, he's an arrow that points to the greatest God on the planet. And Jesus reveals the heart of the triune father to all of humanity, especially the church. Number two, the child is an everlasting father. The child's an everlasting father. This means two things, very simply. The infant is infinite. That the infant is eternally preexistent. That should be a rap song. Take those, right? And we're going to put a rhyme to them. The infant is infinite. Uh, Jesus, they're never, sorry. Like some of you, you're catching my brain. If you're new, welcome. But this is, there, there are so many self-dialogues that go on in my brain while I'm preaching. I'm like, that's a rap song. I should probably give that to Calvin White and let him rap that, okay? Uh, there never once was a time when the sun was not. Way back in the day, there was this dude named Arius who goes down in church history to be a heretic, and, and he was teaching that the sun, there once was a time when the sun was not, and Arius was... Um, Honestly, a pretty smart guy, and the Arians, the people who followed him, put together these little jingles. There once was a time when the sun was not, and, and we don't really totally know how the melody went, but that's in my brain how it goes. And this Arian heresy um, grew up in the fourth century, and many, many, many people believed it. And the heresy, the lie, the untruth is this, that Jesus is not eternally preexistent, but there was a point in time when he began to exist and then we step back and say, no, the Bible declares with absolute authority Jesus is eternally preexistent. There never once was a time when the Son was not. He has always existed. And the incarnation was not the beginning of his existence, but a new revelation to humanity of who he really is. And so we get to this first thing we see here that the child is eternal. He's an everlasting father. There never once was a time when he was not, but there never will be a time when he is not in absolute control. And so what do you want from your dad? You want strength, and you want to know that he is in control of all the craziness going on. 
And we get to God the Father, we get to Jesus Christ, we get to the child who is revealing the heart of the Father. Jesus is in control at all times because he is eternally preexistent. All things that exist, every ruler who could stand up against him and say, I'm going to take you down, like Satan, the ultimate joke who thought he could take down God, forgets that Jesus spoke and Satan existed, and Jesus, all he has to do is speak and Satan bends the knee. And any ruler who tries to rise up against Jesus at the end of the day will lose. And for a period of time, Jesus has allowed human rulers to puff their chest and exert their authority, and one day soon, he will come back to judge the living and the dead, and every ruler will bow, and he will be an actual everlasting father and he will lead provide and protect God's people on a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity without stop and nothing nothing can change it because he is the creator and the ruler of all things I want to read to you John chapter 8 it's a fun awesome interesting story and uh, it goes like this it'll be on the board so you can just read it there the Jews answered Jesus and they said are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? By the way, Jesus is not a Samaritan and they're making fun of him because he's saying things that are probably crazy to them. And, and uh, anyway, so it's like a, it's a low blow there. So Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. And I want you to catch his sense of humor here. He's just so funny. This is where I'm like, I want to watch these things because I feel like he just embarrasses people so often. Anyways, uh, Jesus answered, I, I do not have a demon. But FYI, I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I'm God's kid, and you're messing with God's child. FYI. And he goes on. Yet, I don't seek my own glory. Uh, there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anybody keeps my word, he will never see death. And then the Jews respond. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And then Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Look, I'm not going to sit here and glorify myself and be like, I'm God, I'm amazing, bend the knee. Um, it's my father who glorifies me. Oh, you remember I'm God's kid and you're dishonoring me, so you're dishonoring God, um, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. Could you imagine you get into a theological argument with somebody and they say, I'm God's son and you don't know him. You have no idea who he is. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar, like you. <laughs> But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Oh, the Jews now are in an uproar. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? I want you to just listen to Jesus here. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, <laughs> but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I imagine he puts his invisibility cloak on and he's like, you know, like, missed that one, like the Matrix, you know? Like. And what he's trying to communicate to them is, when you see the Father, you see me. Now, we're distinct. We're two separate persons, one part of one God. Um, but I reveal the Father to you. I'm not the father, but I am a father to my people. And when you see my leadership, my provision, and my protection, all it does is reveal to you God the Father's heart for his people, and the child will reign as king forever. He will never 
let his people down. He will never be defeated. A dead Jesus will do no good for us. Dying men need an undying Christ. We need a father who is not just like every other president and every other king who comes and goes and leaves us in a tumultuous question of like, who's gonna come next? What's gonna happen with the nation? We need somebody with sovereignty, power, control, justice, and righteousness to reign and not just for four years or not just for 50 years, but for all of eternity because we need an everlasting father. And I just love this picture of Jesus that he, the child, will grow up to be this king who reigns forever and ever and ever. I am not a forever father. I am an illustration. I am a shadow. I am a temporary stopgap to redirect the hearts of my children and the hearts of anybody that I might be a spiritual father to, to Jesus Christ, who reveals the heart of God the Father. And so we have this beautiful privilege, Village Church. When people interact with us or when we inter and they interact with our families to show them just a glimpse of the heart of God the Father. And I want to just tell you this on Christmas. If you have never trusted in Jesus, every other leader will fail you and he never, ever will fail you. He will reconcile you to God the Father, give you the Holy Spirit which will never leave you or forsake you. And he will give you absolute confidence, security, identity, and reveal the fullness of divinity to you. All your questions will begin to be answered as you open up the word of God and allow Jesus to reveal the truth of who God is to you. And so our, our, our plea this, this Christmas is trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He is an everlasting father. Is he the father? Everybody say no. No. But he is an everlasting father. Let's pray together. Father. Thank you for giving us your son, Jesus, who so perfectly reveals you and your heart. God, thank you that Jesus is a leader, provider, protector for us, your people. Um, Lord, what a joy to be your sons and your daughters. What a joy to have our security or have our identity in Jesus Christ. What a joy to have divinity revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ. And so God, this Christmas, I pray that Jesus would become that much more personal and beautiful to us and that we now understanding the power of the role of a dad that Lord we would look to Jesus and give to our families just a glimpse of what you have given to us as our father so we love you and we pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus amen amen